Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Warning! If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> been standing at that shelf for like 20 minutes. He looks frantic. He's gonna have a heart attack or something. Hmm. He has been there quite a long time, hasn't he? Why don't you take your cigarette break, Ronnie? I'll see what I can do to lower his blood pressure. Cool. Thanks, Mr. Pyre. The red one. Damn it. The one with the cross on it. I can't pick the wrong one. If only I knew. Good evening. Huh? Oh. Thank you for shopping at Mega Huge. I see you're enjoying our extensive wine collection. I didn't hear you come up behind me. Yes. I'm very light on my feet. How can I help you? I'm trying to figure out which wine to get. I finally got up the courage to ask the girl from accounting over for dinner, and I need to make sure I get the right wine. Hmm. Yes. Nothing beats drinking the perfect red for dinner. I mean, with dinner. I just can't decide. There's so many here. I don't know anything about wine. It's really intimidating. Yes. Yes, it can be. Look at all the bottles. So many of them. Almost too many to count. See how the light dances on the surface of the bottles. And so many labels. All the words. So many letters. Yes. Bottles. Lights, letters, so many, so many. It's enough to make you a little dizzy, isn't it? Yes, I feel strange. Mm. Yes, it's entrancing, mesmerizing. It makes you forget everything and relax. 
Yes. Relax. Excellent. Delicious. Well now, it sounds like poor Claude ended up all dried up. Vlad had no problem getting what he wanted to drink to come right to him, and had no problem making his selection. Wouldn't you rather be like Vlad? Of course you would. Trying to figure out which wine you'll like can really suck the life out of you. <laughs> if only Claude had used Wink, he wouldn't have had such a draining evening. Wink makes it easy to discover great wine, and you don't even have to leave your crypt. You just answer some questions about things like how you take your coffee and if you like blueberries, and their team of mystical wine experts use their powers to see into the future and send you wine you'll love, shipped right to your door. Finding a great wine doesn't have to be terrifying. Don't be a clod, kiddies. Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash wicked library and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash wicked library for $20 off. Trywink.com slash wicked library. Welcome to episode number 806 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our new and ongoing supporters. If you enjoy this show and you want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon or thewickedlibrary.com. Not only do all of our supporters get a completely ad-free show, they also get the highest quality version of the show, which means a higher bitrate MP3, to hear the wickedness even more clearly and access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and depending upon the level of support, you'll get to hear our bonus stories before the free listeners, plus, at the $10 a month and above level, you'll get to hear our new show, available only to our supporters, The Private Collector, which features the librarian and kind of explores what he does when he's not introducing the show. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or visit thewickedlibrary.com forward slash subscribe to become a friend of the Wicked Library and, of course, a friend of the Librarian. Whether you choose to support us directly or on Patreon, you get access to all the same cool stuff. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for Season 9 and beyond, and we need your help to do that. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings help others find the show, and we love hearing how and why you listen to the wicked tales we share. One of our recent reviews asked about submitting stories. Jax907 said, I love this podcast. I listen all day long. The stories are amazing. Really something for everyone. I especially love The Librarian, and the narration is the best I've heard by far. I was searching for more horror shows to listen to at work or in the car and came across this one and fell in love instantly. Thank you for everything you guys do there and keep up the great work and keep us scared. Side question, 
do you guys accept fan-submitted stories? Okay, so I'm just going to call you Jack, since your review makes us friends now. But all of our stories are submitted by writers who are fans and listeners of the show. If you're interested in having your story appear on the Wicked Library, you can find our guidelines and submission form at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash submissions. We'll look forward to seeing your story soon. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. A special thank you to Mike Delgadio of BoothJunkie.com for being the storyteller for both of today's stories, Tunda and The Wicker House. Booth Junkie is a Season 8 partner, and Mike is a friend and all-around great guy. You can check out his YouTube channel at BoothJunkie.com. Today's episode features two fantastic tales by Michael Landry, followed by an interview with the author. Now, let's get wicked. Hello, kiddies. You know who I am by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. (laughs) Tunda by Michael Landry The Journal of Thomas Wicker, November 3rd, 1910 There are a thousand ways to die in the Columbian rainforest. I first gained this appreciation as a young boy when, in a questionable bit of parental inspiration, father allowed me to accompany him to inspect our family's South American holdings, in particular a coffee plantation located on the eastern slopes of the Andes. The expedition was considered almost routine, the chosen path well known to our guards and guides, and yet even so we encountered no small number of difficulties in our travels. In one case the hardship was self-imposed, A famous spendthrift, father only secured enough Peruvian bark for the white members of our party. Plagued the entire way by incessant swarms of disease-bearing mosquitoes, several of the native porters fell ill with the sweats, too fatally. In another instance, we stopped along our route in a small village to rest for a day or two. One of father's men, a Mr. Casper by name, went into the jungle with a local girl, his intentions only too clear. Our party received a shock when the girl returned a short time later, naked and covered in blood, babbling incessantly in her native tongue. One of our guides who spoke the language eventually got the tale from her. It seems that in the throes of their passion, Mr. Casper failed to notice the stealthy approach of one Panthera Anka, that most deadly of Amazonian cats. The feline made short work of the man, powerful jaws latching mercilessly onto the back of his exposed neck, while the girl, pinned beneath the victim, could only watch helplessly. We found him the next day hanging from the high branches of a tree, bloodless and stored like so much meat in an icebox for later consumption. Father, 
proclaiming Mr. Casper's demise as the ripened fruit of the man's own stupidity, would not deign to give him a burial. Rather, we continued on our way to the plantation, the body left to the beast who claimed it through those ancient rites of the hunt. All said the trip was extremely educational, if in an utterly unconventional sort of way. Returning home to America after several long months of travel, my young mind was opened to the disparity that existed in the world, never more aware of the benefits offered me by the accrued wealth of my family. I'm unsure the precise effect father had hoped my accompanying him on the journey would induce, but I do know that he must have viewed the reality as a most spectacular failure. I had tasted the life of the explorer, the excitement and the danger, and found it wanting. What was adventure to the modern comforts of a privileged life? I swore an oath to myself that never again would I be deprived of modern convenience, that the most daring I would undertake would be through new culinary experience, or perhaps seducing the exotic princess of a foreign land. I threw myself into this newly chosen lifestyle with gusto, and can accordingly mark with some significant accuracy when father's eventual hatred of me took seed in our relationship. It is thus, with some surprise, that I find myself now returning to that same plantation I visited in my youth. Since father's death almost a decade ago, I've generally allowed proxies to take care of the day-to-day -day responsibilities of managing the family holdings. Father ensured he employed only the most educated lawyers, selected the hardest-willed and most obedient men as his overseers and foremen, and so the Wicker estate has continued to run itself as some kind of great machine whose engineer has long since abandoned the controls. This is fortunate, as I have no particular interest in business myself, a fact that no doubt served as another blight on my character in my father's eyes. But current circumstances demand my attention. I shall refrain from again recounting in these pages the strange events surrounding father's murder. Just so, I have utterly failed to convince any others to the verity of such tales, and have subsequently ceased to make the attempt lest I am thought more cracked than father in his final days. Indeed, much as my expedition with father first opened my mind to the nature of a privileged life, so too did his death widen my perspective to those ungodly, hidden things with which men share this world like a jaguar silently stalking the Amazonian canopy. It is due to this enlightened viewpoint, one that allows the existence of the fantastic and occult alongside the otherwise commonplace and mundane, that I am responding personally to the devilry currently afflicting the operation of my Colombian plantation. I received a letter just over a month ago from Mr. Giles, longtime overseer of the facility. Life near the Andes jungle is tenuous at best, with death always a hair's breadth away, as illustrated by my own youthful journey. Yet Mr. Giles' reported recent events were perpetuated by something far more than any such commonly suffered maladies. It was this past June that the first of the disappearances had occurred. Initially, a small thing, a native man or two failing to show up to his picking shift, such absences were easily attributed to a too-hard night of drinking or a simple decision to move on from the plantation. The work was hard and unforgiving, 
and turnover was regularly high among the laborers. But after a week of disappearances, and with none of a dozen or so men managing to return from their absences, it became clear that something more sinister was afoot. Mr. Giles ordered the foreman to interview the laborers, forcefully enough to determine that they were being truthful in their ignorance as to the nature of the disappearances. Indeed, all that was ascertained by the inquiry was that the victims had to this point all been young men between the age of sixteen and thirty, and all had vanished some time during the hours past sundown. Confirming a further lack of knowledge among the general population, Mr. Giles proceeded along a logical line of reasoning. It was not unheard of for a local predator to gain a taste for man-flesh, much as in the case of Mr. Casper's undignified demise. The foreman organized a rotating series of hunting parties to conduct forays into the jungle, searching for some sign of the murderous beast or its victims, to no avail. Since an active confrontation with the culprit had proven unsatisfactory, a number of clever devices were rigged near the perimeter of the plantation, as well as outside the small adjoining village in which the majority of the workers lived. Mr. Giles's overseers were a hard, experienced lot, and comprised a broad collective knowledge of fieldcraft and ingenuity, reflected in the nature of their improvised booby traps. Tiger pits from Burma, man-catchers from Malaysia, punji stakes, deadfalls, and a dozen other such deadly workings were employed, their construction taking on a competitive air as each man sought to outdo his compatriots. But despite these Herculean efforts, the disappearances continued, unabated, until almost a tenth of Mr. Giles's force had gone missing. Men began abandoning the plantation in droves, unwilling to wager their lives in defense of their livelihood, with ultimately only one in four men choosing to stay on. The November harvest, ripe and unpicked, the beans in danger of rotting, it was with deepest regret that Mr. Giles was at last forced to report the inevitability of the plantation's production would fail to meet quota. To be honest, news of the potential loss of revenue did not overly concern me. My family's holdings are extravagantly vast and varied, possessing shares in everything from oil fields in Turkey to fisheries off the shores of Nova Scotia. The downturn of a single plantation would scarcely be a noticeable absence amidst the Wicker Estate's annual profits, never mind that the accrued wealth held in banks and markets across the world is already significant enough to persist for at least several lifetimes. And, as I have previously stated thus, I am hardly a business wonderkind, possessing the acumen that would allow the plantation to turn calamity to glorious success. To the contrary, I am sure the crop will fail. Indeed, since receiving Mr. Giles's letter, I've resolved to close the facility as even the thought of the effort necessary to recover the plantation once this crisis has reached its resolution bores me to tears. I don't need the money, God knows. Better to simply close the damn thing and be done with it. But not yet. No, not yet. You see, though I care little for coffee or the beans from whence it comes, since father's death I have developed an obsession with the inexplicable. I have learned far more than I once could have ever imagined. 
For eight years, scouring the world, defying by more natural inclinations to merely abide in an existence of simple luxury, I have seen things, many wonderful and strange. I have gradually begun to ever so gently peel back the thin veneer that separates our waking world from how things truly are. And gods, it is exhilarating and terrifying. It is in this pursuit that I find myself returning to Columbia. For, in his report, Mr. Giles admitted that, while he did not know wherein the rumor began that the plantation was being haunted, shortly after the disappearances began, a word was on the breath of every man, white and brown, still remaining at the facility. Tunda. The name, previously a complete unknown to me, pointed research into the matter offered but little illumination. Described as a changeling who often takes the form of a loved one or beautiful woman to lure victims into its grasp, reports vary across the region with little support ranging from one account to the next. Indeed, my study could not even reach a consensus regarding the fate of the thing's victims, whether their blood is drunk like fine wine or they are devoured whole. Most odd is that the creature's shape-shifting ability is often reported as imperfect, with some aspect of the being's true form remaining visible while the rest is disguised, oftentimes a deformed leg. I do not believe this last. In my experience with the fantastic, such a chink in the predator's armor, some telltale sign enabling the unwary prey to spot his otherwise indistinguishable hunter, is more like to be wishful thinking than actual reality, an illusion of hope. Though I have never heard of the Tunda prior to Mr. Giles's skeptical report, I have known its like. I do not anticipate its identification will be so conveniently forthcoming. Now, having departed from New York to the port of Cartagena, I have nothing to do but wait until I make my landing. I wrote to Mr. Giles requesting he provide an escort to meet my ship and guide me to the plantation. With luck, I shall avoid the pitfalls of my previous excursion here, and ought to be arrived to the property within the month. November 20, 1910 The situation at the plantation has degraded far worse than reported in Mr. Giles's letter. Since I last wrote, good weather favored my ship's passage, and I was pleasantly surprised to be met upon debarkation by Mr. Lyle McCready within Mr. Giles's employ. A veteran of the Indian Wars, Mr. McCready is a strong, capable sort, if in possession of something of a sour disposition. Still, his demeanor improved markedly when I revealed the case of good Kentucky bourbon stowed within my luggage, and soon he and the two porters he had secured had me well on my way to the facility. With two mounts per man, we made good time, far better than on my previous expedition, and within ten days had traveled the almost three hundred miles to the plantation near the Venezuelan border at Cucuta. The mood of our little party took a discernible downturn this morning as we neared our destination, and soon all traces of goodwill had retreated from Mr. McCready's stony countenance. His eyes, shifting continuously from one side of the trail to the other, his hand never strayed far from the large revolver already loosened in the holster worn upon his hip, all the while the looming trees seemed to close in around our little band. We were perhaps three miles from the plantation when the smell ambushed us. 
the customary bitterness of the coffee beans mixed with a sick sweetness as they turned sour. There was something unsettling about that final leg of the journey that took me several uncomfortable minutes to identify. The sounds of the jungle, or rather, their absence. Other than the gentle hoofbeats of our mules along the worn dirt track, the foul air was silent, empty of bird call and insect alike. The land was already dead, the presence of the plantation merely artificially extending the semblance of life. Passing between the fields of rotted plants, we at last reached the facility proper. It appeared much as I remembered from my youth, a high wire fence surrounding the large drying shacks, shocking annex, and mills adjoining a modest administrative building which served as both office and living area for Mr. Giles and the overseers. A bit further down the road, I could just spy the small outcrop of buildings comprising the workers' village. I recalled from my last trip an omnipresent haze of smoke hanging over the huts from cooking fires and stoves, a constant state of bustling motion as the pickers came and went from their barracks, joking and laughing in their shared camaraderie. But now, the air was clear, the lack of movement as haunting as the silent jungle. We were greeted at the gate of the compound by Mr. Giles himself. Always a bear of a man, he seemed much unchanged from when I first met him, but for a great deal more gray in his beard. He ushered us into the relative safety of the wire fence where we offloaded the mules and sent the porters on their way before proceeding to the office, Mr. Giles hobbling ahead on a makeshift crutch. While reiterating the profuse apologies of his original correspondence, he explained that since his letter the tunda had become emboldened as the population of the camp dwindled. At night its chilling cries, a strange amalgam of animal howl and maniacal cackle could be heard echoing throughout the surrounding jungle. Mr. Giles had temporarily reintegrated armed patrols into the daily routine, hoping to catch the creature unaware but the diminished manpower had forced him to participate in the hunt himself. On one such excursion about a week past, he'd witnessed the man on his flank jerked violently into the brush. Mr. Giles charged after the victim, his yells startling the rest of the stalking party. In the ensuing conflagration, one of the workers discharged his rifle into the jungle where Mr. Giles had disappeared, inadvertently striking him through the thigh. The wound, while painful, had fortunately avoided major blood vessels and was not life-threatening. In the days since, Mr. Giles had suspended the patrols, deciding that the likelihood of success did not outweigh the associated hazards. More so, his injury served as a catalyst to drive out those few workers still heretofore remaining at the camp, effectively making such regular hunts impossible. The only souls still manning the plantation were Mr. Giles himself, and the half-dozen white overseers with whom he shared the administrative living space, nine men, all told, with the addition of myself and Mr. McCready. As Mr. Giles provided us with this update, I could not help the niggling suspicion that gradually began to worm its way into my mind. My thoughts turned to that one unlikely detail of my research, in which the tunda is able to transmogrify all but one of its lower limbs— Though I continue to doubt this limitation, if true, would a seemingly wounded leg, well wrapped in blood-soaked bandages, not serve as a capable disguise? But no, 
Surely others saw the occurrence of the injury, helped him treat it, and what's more, the man remembers the details of our first meeting from all those years past. I have decided I will not besmirch his dignity to require a more detailed examination of his leg, at least not until circumstances demand it. Night has fallen as I am ending this entry, but I have not yet heard the strange echoing cries Mr. Giles described. Perhaps some predatory instinct has warned the beast what my arrival portends and sent it scurrying back to its lair. I am not some native crippled by fear and superstition, nor am I a typical Westerner, handicapped by willful ignorance and denial. I almost pity the poor thing. Tonight I will rest, for the long journey has left me utterly sapped, but tomorrow the hunt begins in earnest. November 21st, 1910. Morning. God damn me for a fool! In the night, Mr. Giles went missing along with three of the remaining overseers. We are now but five left. Myself, Mr. McCready, and Mr. Gerard, Buckwald, and Foster. The beast did not make its presence known. None of us heard or observed any sign of their departure. And thus I cannot determine whether Mr. Giles was, in fact, the creature in disguise or merely another of its victims. I have drastically underestimated my foe. I have ordered Mr. McCready to outfit the men with supplies and an abundance of firearms. It is my intent to make our way into the jungle and track the hellspawn to where it must now be resting, drowsy from gorging itself, and make an end to it. November 21st, 1910, Evening We entered the jungle as planned, and soon had the thing's trail. Though Mr. McCready and the others are experienced woodsmen, they did not have the requisite knowledge to track a thing only vestigially of this world, as I do. As we went, I attempted to educate them in the means of identifying such trail sign, but with minor success. Near midday, we emerged into an unnatural clearing, perhaps twenty feet in diameter. Its perimeter was marked by four large standing stones about eight feet in height, and covered in symbols unknown to any of us, but appearing to be of exotic origin. My nearest available analogy, some early proto-Arabic writings I once studied at the British Museum of London. The north-facing stone was knocked asunder by some unknown means, effectively breaking the circle. As others rested, I made an examination of the clearing, wherefore I came upon a small artifact, the likeness of a woman carved from a white compound perhaps bone, and oddly warm to the touch. Placing the idol in my pocket, I moved to rouse the men and continue our pursuit, when I discovered that Mr. Buckwald had vanished. Upon this realization, Mr. Gerard and Foster were driven to rage, their anger misguidedly directed at me. Apparently they believed they would have been otherwise long departed from the plantation had I not insisted on making my visitation and blamed me for what they now perceived as all but certain doom. As they moved against me, throwing me to the ground while removing large knives from their belts in a wholly threatening manner, my defense came from a most unexpected quarter as Mr. McCready drew his great pistol and, in short order, splattered the contents of both men's skulls over the jungle floor. Helping me to my feet, Mr. McCready suggested we retire to the plantation, load up the mules with the remaining supplies, and move to return to Cartagena. 
Though a part of me cried achingly to continue our pursuit of the Tunda, I was forced to agree with his assessment of our unfavorable situation and acquiesced to this proposed course of action. I refused to take full blame for getting lost on the way back to the compound, for, as I have said, my woodcraft is highly specialized in tracking those beings of the supernatural. In truth, Mr. McCready should have insisted on leading far sooner than he did. By the time he took command of our route and got us back on the proper heading, twilight had fully set in. I am unsure whether it was my superior perception or divine intervention that allowed me to step past the hidden pit unharmed, but in either case, Mr. McCready was not as fortunate. The hole, one of the traps previously set to catch the creature, had been dug about eight feet deep. The bottom arranged with sharp stakes coated with a foul-smelling substance. Even in the waning light, I could make out the pool of blood rapidly forming beneath Mr. McCready from where he lay, impaled, one hand raised toward me in a pleading gesture, desperation emanating from his pain-stricken face. I briefly debated making an attempt to remove him from the pit, but an ominous stirring of the nearby undergrowth made me reconsider. I am not proud that I left him there, but there was nothing to be done, his imminent death agonizingly obvious. His pleading sobs will surely haunt my dreams. I have successfully returned to the administrative building and made a makeshift barricade to bar the door. Tomorrow, I shall load the mules and begin my long journey to the coast. November 22nd, 1910 The morning sun awoke me from an uneasy sleep. Moving to the paddock to saddle the mules, I found the poor beasts slaughtered, black tongues already swelling where they lay amidst a bed of their own innards. Contemplating my options as I moved back towards the office, I was startled by a low series of moans emanating from near the entrance gate. Drawing my pistol and wary of a trick, I cautiously made my way to locate the source. I was shocked to find two bodies sprawled in the dirt outside the locked gate. The first was Mr. McCready, pale and still leaking from the puncture wound in his thigh, his belt and scraps of cloth tied to stem the worst of the flow. Next to him lay Mr. Giles, naked, his bullet-wounded legs swollen in angry red. Each man in turn begged for my help imploring me to let him into the gate and shoot the other who was clearly the monster in disguise. As I stood, silent and unsure, contemplating these two men and their similarly wounded legs, their entreaties became first more desperate than violent. In a sudden flash of inspiration, I knew the only choice to make. I shot both men in the head. To my disappointment, neither reverted to the Tunda's true form, but then none of my research indicated that such a revealing would occur. Even if both were, in fact, who they claimed, I cannot feel much regret, as neither would have survived the journey ahead in such a state without the mules. I have rigged one of the saddlebags to allow me to carry as many supplies as I am comfortably able, pistol and ammunition ready at my belt. I have now traveled my intended route three times in my life, and am confident I can find the way. Perhaps once I reach the village in which Mr. Casper met his untimely demise, I will be able to acquire a mule or even a porter. 
300 miles over stinking, inhospitable land, stalked by an otherworldly being is nothing to a man of my experience. A trifle. Yes, nothing at all. I once wrote there are a thousand ways to die in the Colombian rainforest. As I finish this entry, a low, keening wail rising from the surrounding jungle amends me. A thousand and one. The Wicker House by Michael Landry Of course, everyone claiming residence in Arthur's Wake knows tales associated with the Wicker House. It seems that every small province plays host to some structure of ill repute which, as if by supernatural magnetism, draws rumor of ghosts and bogies, wrapping the timber and stone of its foundation in a shroud of darkness and horror. In Arthur's Wake, the Wicker House fills this odious task. Scant days after arriving in town, while taking the time to familiarize myself with the local watering hole and its residents, I became introduced to the well-known superstitions surrounding the Wigger House. As a man of science, I knew any truths to be found in these outlandish stories were likely embellished, to points unrecognizable. Nothing was first-hand. All experiences were from a friend who knew a fellow who may have seen something. It is the provincial mind which transforms wild dogs into wolves that walk like men and interprets astronomical phenomena as harbingers of certain doom. Still, my curiosity sufficiently piqued, I endeavored to better inform myself on the subject through more objective means. To my great surprise, while failing to confirm the more supernatural claims of the tales, the town records in the basement of the local library did provide aspect to a most sinister reality all their own. The house was built in 1920 by the millionaire Thomas Wicker, who, in addition to being both a successful oil prospector and fishing magnate, was, by all accounts, completely insane. No one knows what first drew Wicker to Arthur's wake, some speculate this as the first outward sign of his impending madness. What is known is that the foundations of the house which would come to assume his name were poured almost immediately upon his arrival. The structure was supremely modest for a man of Wicker's means, rising a mere two stories in height and composed of scarcely a dozen rooms, plus cellar and attic for storage. The house was built on Blackwood Drive, a major tributary to the town's main street, and close to the industrial center, such as it was. The plot itself consisted of about a quarter acre, the yard home to a few blossoming trees and a small garden, the whole of which was surrounded by a high wrought iron fence accessed by a similar gate. The posts of this formidable perimeter were topped by wicked spikes to discourage would-be trespassers. Construction concluded rapidly, and the autumn of 1920 saw Wicker take up residence in the house, accompanied by a maid, groundsman, and his wife. The lady of the house quickly became the subject of gossip among the townsfolk. During the construction, Wicker had boarded his wife in parts unknown. None could recall when she arrived at the house. One day she was simply there. As the groundskeeper cared for the exterior yard and garden, and the maid handled all domestic chores, including trips to market, the lady was, herself, never seen to exit the house. Due to this complete lack of socialization, the townsfolk did not learn so much about the woman as her Christian name. 
The servants themselves shed no light upon the subject. The man hailed from a remote part of the dark continent, and the woman appeared to be a mixed breed, vaguely of the Orient. Wicker had acquired the service of each while abroad for business dealings, and neither spoke a word of English. Naturally, the Lady Wicker was the object of most persistent rumor. Early speculation was she suffered from some exotic malady which left her drawn and bedridden. These theories were repudiated by those few who would occasionally spy her from the street. In each case, she was seen exclusively at night, staring forlornly through the second-story window of what was assumed to be her bedchamber, lit only by candlelight from within, and to all appearances the picture of health. Additionally, there was little chance the typically damp and sunless climate of the wake would be prescribed to improve one's own constitution by even the most inept of physicians. As common folk are wont to do, with a logical explanation absent, more fantastic theories were crafted. Some began to speculate the woman was a witch, others an enslaved angel won by Wicker whilst dicing with Satan. What all who observed her agreed upon, though, was her singular beauty. I gleaned much of this information from archives of the local paper, especially one curiosity piece which was accompanied by a photograph of the lady in question. The scene was just as I'd heard it described, the lonely single prisoner peering through the window and across that terrible iron fence into the darkness of the night. The photograph was muddled due to the quality of the prehistoric equipment and the lack of natural light, effectively obscuring the lady's features. Indeed, it was difficult to distinguish whether the blurred form was in fact human, though it did project an impression of unmistakable femininity. And yet, even through that grayish haze, I could perceive a certain piercing, almost hypnotic quality of her eyes. Wicker himself was something of a mystery, though considerably less so than his bride. An attractive man, tall, dark-haired, and well-featured, many a young woman found herself undeniably jealous of this seldom-observed Lady Wicker. Though often away for long periods on business excursions, at home Wicker would frequent the only drinking establishment in the wake, an illicit locale consistently ignored by the well-bribed police force charged with upholding prohibition. Although he had no one in town that might be explicitly named friend, Wicker was known to purchase drinks for the house on his occasions of patronage and was, as such, engaged in conversation by no few number of fellow revelers. It never took long for Wicker's tongue to be sufficiently loosened, at which time he would regale his latest passel of hangers-on with fantastic stories of his journeys abroad, forbidden hoodoo rites in the Caribbean, strange tribal sacrifices in the heart of Africa, dead men who walked in Eastern Europe, and countless others, each one stranger and blacker than the last. Though Wicker never spoke of his wife directly, these tales only served to expound upon the rumors of her origins. Things progressed much in this way for some five years. Wicker would travel and carouse upon his return. The servants went about their business without comment or complaint. The townsfolk gossiped. The lady remained a shut-in. The horror occurred without warning. The events that took place on the eve of Sam Hain in the year 1925 have gone down in the history of Arthur's Wake as unembellished fact. Among the town records, I discovered the report of the patrolman dispatched to respond to the disturbance at the Wicker House. The narrative was itself accompanied by the most gruesome of photographs from the scene in question. I will summarize their contents directly. 
Thomas Wicker returned from his latest trip abroad on the 31st of October. Having stopped briefly at home, he arrived at the aforementioned drinking establishment in a clearly agitated state. The always impeccably dressed Wicker was sloppily garbed, one shirt tail hanging out of his trousers, shoes scuffed beyond repair. It was obvious he had not recently bathed or shaved. His well-groomed hair was must, and his eyes were bloodshot and wild. Approaching the bar, he seized an entire bottle of liquor, took several long swallows without the use of a glass, and ignored all attempts from other patrons to engage him in conversation. Taking a final drink from the bottle, he placed his wallet and the entirety of its contents on the bar, smashed the now almost empty receptacle upon the ground, and exited with the astonished eyes of all present following him. That this entire portion of the episode occurred within a completely illegal establishment is not lost on me, although it apparently was on the investigating patrolmen. As I have said, they were well bribed. That no mortal eye remains which observed what happened next is surely proof of a merciful God. The two patrolmen who first came upon the scene were summoned by terrified reports of shrill cries and demonic cackles. Long-term veterans and hard men both, they were nevertheless ill-prepared for what they would soon find at the Wicker House. Armed with a lantern and clubs in hand, the men carefully approached the dwelling now ominously quiet. The great iron gate was open askew, as was the oaken door at the top of the steps leading to the interior of the house. Receiving no response from their shouted inquiries, the patrolmen cautiously entered the foyer and proceeded to search the ground floor. They found the first horror in the kitchen. The maid had been tied with thick hemp rope to a large table, limbs spread and secured to each of the four legs. She was naked, the butcher knife which had been used to slit her throat permanently sheathed in her heart. Glistening blood dripped from the cruel altar, slowly pooling on the floor, while telltale splatters painted the walls like macabre decoration. The patrolmen shared a glance of mutual, unbelieving dread, tightened their grips upon their clubs, and continued to search the premises in complete, terrified silence. Having determined the cellar empty through a brief yet understandably taut examination, they exited the back door to the yard and discovered the groundsman's body. A thick wooden stake had been erected in the center of the garden and crossed by a perpendicular beam. The man hung naked, suspended from the crossbeam by spikes harshly driven through his wrists and ankles in a grotesque simulacrum of Christ's crucifixion. He had been disemboweled, ropey innards pouring out of his belly, dripping blood and excrement. Horrified, the patrolmen reluctantly agreed that a premature conclusion of their search to summon reinforcements would provide a very dangerous murderer a chance at escape. The men re-entered the house and agonizingly proceeded up the winding stair to the second floor. Systematically, they searched each room, uncovering nothing until only one remained. The bedchamber of the elusive Lady Wicker. Eyes wide, heart pounding wildly, the lead man slowly eased the latch. Raising their clubs, the men burst through the door and stopped, dumbfounded. The room was completely dark and empty, devoid of trappings or furniture of any kind. By the thin beam of their lantern lights, the men saw that strange occult symbols had been scrawled on every surface of the room, though those on the far wall had been somehow marred. 
Of the murderous Thomas Wicker or his mysterious wife, there was no sign. A noise from above alerted the men to their quarry's location. They spied a trapdoor operated by a string which, when pulled, revealed a ladder leading up to the lightless storage space of the attic. The two patrolmen stared at the entrance, yawning black and wide as the maw of some infernal creature, beckoning fools to wander to their doom. Unable to decide who should proceed first, the men threw evens. The unlucky loser took the lantern and ascended the ladder. He stopped halfway through the aperture, lantern held high to better diffuse its light and ready to beat a hasty retreat to the relative safety of the hallway below. The attic was in a state of disorder, strange souvenirs of wicker strips abroad stacked haphazardly throughout. The constable slowly played his beam about, gradually revealing each disjointed mound of clutter. At last, the light fell upon the attic's far corner, revealing the huddled, gibbering mass of the man they sought or what had been the man. Indeed, whatever reason serves to separate man from beast had, sensing it was no longer a suitable dwelling place, fled the form of Thomas Wicker. The handsome features were gone, replaced by deeply sunken cheeks and a hideous grin. As the patrolman stared, terrified, he could see the creature was covered in the blood of his victims left below. Hands about his knees, Wicker slowly rocked, babbling to himself. Joined by his fellow, the constables steadily advanced. Arms outstretched, they readied to seize the thing that had been Thomas Wicker, when his mad eyes shifted upon them and the muttering stopped. In a moment of seeming clarity, he whispered, she's gone, before emitting a maniacal howl and leaping to his feet. Taken aback, the patrolman hesitated, affording the lunatic room to bound past them to the window and hurl himself through the glass. His desperate shriek gave way to a sickening thud. The men rushed to the broken window. Far below, by the light of the moon, they saw the body of Thomas Wicker jerk spastically, impaled by the wicked spikes atop the iron wall. By the time the patrolman descended from the attic, the hideous motion had mercifully stopped. The remainder of the report is, compared to the extraordinary events that had thus far taken place, remarkably mundane. Determining that the murderer was indeed dead, the patrolman called for reinforcements. The house was searched in detail, and much speculation was made regarding the fantastic totems and fetishes populating every nook and cranny. All who set foot on the premises were in unanimous agreement that Thomas Wicker was unequivocally mad. Most confounding of all, there was no sign of what fate befell the mysterious Lady Wicker. Taking the lunatic's final utterance as related by the patrolman, the investigators deduced that the lady, tired of being regularly abandoned, had fled to parts unknown during Wicker's latest trip abroad. Upon his return, the shock had been enough to push the man into a murderous rage. Since virtually nothing was known of the woman, neither whence she came or even her proper name, no search was mounted and the case dismissed. It is from this point that the tale departs from the realm of logical reason to instead delve into the twisted byways of urban legend. About a month after the death of Thomas Wicker was when the disappearances began, the investigation of which ultimately led to my arrival in Arthur's Wake. Parents would put their children to bed at night and find them gone the next morning. Exhaustive searches of the wake uncovered nothing. 
Strangers new to the town were accosted, imprisoned, and in one instance lynched by a frightened mob. Some questionable evidence was found on the man's body after the fact, and with the suspect too dead to proclaim his innocence, the police happily declared the case closed. That the pattern of disappearances has continued for more than 60 years would suggest they were mistaken. I have been unable to identify the first to claim seeing a strange light emitted from the long-abandoned window of the Lady Wicker's bedchamber, nor the one who swore he heard the sound of children playing as he hurriedly passed the accursed home. I do know that the tales have spread and grown to the point they are not so easily dismissed. Shortly, I will ascertain any truth to them that may be. I turn off the small audio recorder I have been speaking into and place it in my pocket as I make the turn onto Blackwood Drive. Heaven only knows for whom I make these notes. A lifetime of chasing ghost stories, of hunting down tales of creatures that delight the imagination and offend the sensibilities, has thus far provided me no hard evidence of the existence of some supernatural realm dwelling in the darkened shadows of our world. Indeed, each investigation only further affirms what I have long determined. The human mind is a miraculous thing in its unabashed propensity to deceive itself. And yet, I abide. Perhaps this will be the time my perseverance is at last rewarded with even a bare glimpse of that other place. A place every man knows, yet none have seen but in their blackest nightmares. A place of monsters. Slender tendrils of fog quest hungrily between my feet like living things as I approach the ruins of the wicker house. Pushing through the rusted iron gate, I am reminded that, despite my misgivings, I too am human, my mind as readily capable of deception as any other. Indeed, making my way up the front path, a trick of the moonlight suggests a soft glow emanating from the second-story window, as if from a candle lit within, and... Were it not impossible, the visage of a beautiful woman stares down and smiles at me approvingly. My hand tightens on the knob as children's laughter reaches my ears. I open the door. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. We do love our stories here at the Wicked Library. Nightmares are so much fun, aren't they? Or is that only when they happen to someone else? Listen closely in this next tale and... See if you recognize a certain voice. <laughs> okay, everyone. Time to settle down. Let's take our seats so we can begin. As always, I'd like to welcome everyone to Monsters, Apparitions, and Demons Anonymous. The only support group chartered to help monsters and other dark creatures with their problems. I'm glad to see so many of you back again, and I'm happy to see a few new faces, too. Who'd like to go first tonight? Hello, kid... Uh, I mean, fellow agents of chaos. I'd like to share. Hey, what's the one? Didn't think I'd ever see you. Go ahead. 
Well, here's the thing. I'm having a really hard time giving some of our listeners nightmares now that they've been buying their mattresses from Casper. Casper products are so cleverly designed to mimic human curves that they provide supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. We told our listeners to visit casper.com backslash wicked library and enter the promo code wicked library, which gives our listeners $50 towards select mattresses. And now people are sleeping so soundly it's becoming impossible to give them dark dreams. Yes, good point, Frank. Even if you normally feel like you're on fire, and trust me when I say I know how that feels, Casper's breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. I agree. Nothing works like a Casper. Not dream catchers, piles of salt, or even special incantations. I find it impossible to invade the sleeping minds of the dream warriors who have upgraded to Casper. And the fact that Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you makes getting one of their mattresses so reasonable. Everyone can afford to sleep through the night. Right. The Wave has a premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. And the Essential has a streamlined design at the price that won't keep you up at night. Frank speaks the truth. How can we give anyone nightmares when everyone is getting $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash wicked library and entering the promo code wicked library? Yes, I fear it's something I'll lament for years to come. I can't even make the listeners afraid to place their orders since Casper has hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. Too scary to think about. Okay, everyone. Calm down. Calm down. It's scary. But surely, we can come up with a solution. I'd like to say something. Go ahead, Santa. Well, I happen to know for a fact that Vlad, Frank... And even Jerry over there have bought mattresses from Casper. It's... It's two monsters. It's two... Well, you really should try one. After all, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. I've given up my coffin and now sleep like the dead. Every night on my new Casper mattress. Well, when you put it that way, maybe I should get a Casper mattress for myself. Casper is so comfortable it gives your nightmares nightmares. Listeners should visit casper.com slash wicked library and use the promo code wicked library at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Monsters are not real, but then again, maybe they are. The only thing under your bed is the floor. Do not attempt to burn the librarian. Any nightmares that you may have as a result of listening to the show are our free gift to you. You're welcome.
My guest today is Michael Landry, and we've just heard your two stories, Tunda and The Wicker House, two companion pieces. And as we were just talking about a little bit offline before we got started, there's actually a lot more of these out there um, that tie into the story, right? In the series um, that are, they're all, each story is supposed to be standalone. Some of them are more so than the others, but um, there's 19 currently I'm working on. The 20th one right now, which I'm going to try to tie up a whole bunch of the various plot threads and anything and everything else to make something of a of an ending to it. So that's in the process. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of hard work that goes into writing. Uh, I think that folks that listen to the show, a lot of them that are aspiring writers or writers themselves know that there's a lot that goes into writing and especially to have 18, 19 of these pieces what made this a story and a saga that you wanted to tell where you wanted to devote that much of your life and energy to it? So it, it actually didn't start out that way. Um, the very first story in the series that I wrote or that I started to write, um, was actually way back in 2010. Uh, I was, I was actually deployed. Um, I'm still in the army. Uh, and I was overseas and just decided to start writing a story that, uh, I thought might eventually become some kind of a novel. I got about 20,000 words into it um, and just sort of put it in digital mothballs for a while. Um, and then, then a couple years later, I actually wrote the wicker house. Um, again, it was a Halloween season. I, I was feeling like I wanted to write a haunted house story and decided to try my hand at a kind of send up to HP Lovecraft. who's one of my favorite uh, horror writers mm-hmm. and I uh, wrote that. And then just kind of during the course of that and after I'd, I'd finished that and was looking for places online to, to try to maybe put that so some people could actually take a look at reading it, I kind of realized that maybe some of the ideas I'd had with, you know, a few years before that with the soldier that I could kind of work them in and tie them together. And and it just sort of snowballed from there. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's just really how, how that's happened. I think it's really cool that there are a lot of other stories out there for folks to sink their teeth into if they enjoyed what they heard today. Well, I hope that they uh, take the time and energy to go ahead and track them down if they did. Absolutely. Well, we'll make sure we give them a lot of links uh, so that folks can track stuff down as they need to. So what was your biggest struggle with these two pieces uh, when you were putting them together? Especially, I guess, the first one, because it's the first time you were delving into that world, and the second one to expand upon that and make it you know, consistent, but also give something fresh and something new to the story. Sure. Um, so I, I think, uh, since, since the listeners heard Tonda first, that one actually was pretty challenging. Um, the, the wicker house itself was not terribly hard. Like I said, that one was just, I wanted to write something of a haunted house story in the style of Lovecraft. Um, so just very kind of organically, I came up with the name, the wicker house very, very early on and just sort of went from there. The challenge really became later on when I started to try to do this idea of the series and then tie the subsequent stories in um, only because as I went, you know, I had different uh, chronology that I'd came up with different characters. And the other challenge that I sort of have given to myself is most of these stories have actually come from uh, prompts in online writing contests. Okay. Um, so I don't even necessarily come up with all the ideas just uh, on my own. So Tunda, for example, um, it was off of a website called the Writers Arena, 
where you send in a, a piece of writing, which I actually sent in the Wicker House, so they are connected there. And then um, you you essentially face off against one of the the hosts of the site. Uh, they give you a topic, and then you have to write a story around that. And our topic was coffee. And that's very, very general and not something that necessarily lends itself to horror. Um, right. But I had this character, Wicker, uh, uh, Thomas Wicker, that I'd always sort of intended to explore some of his backstory. I'd established in the Wicker house that he was, you know, his family had all these different holdings and, and everything else. And so I said, hey, you know what? Um, what if he's got coffee plantations uh, and there's something going on there? And so I, I did a little bit of research into some of the local mythology in Colombia and, and Ecuador and that kind of thing and, and came up with it, found this local legend called the Tunda, uh, this shape-shifting kind of creature that I had never heard of, even though I consider myself pretty, uh, pretty well-versed in, in different, you know, horror and, and urban legends and that kind of thing. And thought, yeah, you know what, let's, uh, let's see what we can do uh, with that. And, and, and that's sort of how that story spun out, which ended up being way more of um people might notice some pretty pretty familiar beats to uh the movie the thing um which there were some intended and others that were very much not intended that i only kind of figured out later on like the the one character uh is is named mccready totally forgot that um the main character in the thing's name was McCready until I was watching uh, Carpenter's the thing a couple years ago or like a year ago. And I was like, huh, holy, holy, holy heck did not, did not intend that. But, um, so just, yeah, that's, that's, that was a challenge really. It was just the, the topic itself was, was a little out there for a horror story. You know, I thought that, uh, that's one of the things actually that attracted me to the story other than the fact that it had this really creepy, obviously scary vibe to it, which I felt really fits the show. Well, is that it is a new creature that I've never heard of before. And I would probably be surprised to find that many of the listeners have also heard of the Tunda, but I mean, it's, it's a type of creature that you see recurring in different mythologies from different parts of the world. Um, you know, we talk about the, the black shock, uh, is, is one that's real well known from Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's it's kind of got a similar feel, but that that otherworldly, the the familiar but strange type of thing is something that I think is really compelling in, in horror, and obviously something that Lovecraft did really well as also. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. So for putting these two stories together, let's talk. I guess first about Tunda. How many drafts did it take you to get that one in the form that we heard today? That one was actually really really quick. Um, with the with the format of the of the contest itself, or the just the writing challenge, I guess itself, um, they only actually give you ten days to write it uh, after they give you the topic. And so I think I actually I I'm a terrible procrastinator, so I think I waited about five or six before I actually started writing. Yeah. And uh, then I just sort of sat down, and I think it was a three or four thousand word limit. I forget. I think four thousand. Um, but yeah, I just kind of sat down in a cafe one morning and, and just came up with the general idea and sort of went from there. And, and honestly, that one is pretty much unchanged from with it, with it, except for some minor editorial tweaks, that kind of thing from, from the original, uh, sort of iteration that I wrote, um, for the Wicker House. That one was not part of a contest. That was just, again, me sitting down, trying to come up with a, you know, scary story. Um, 
uh, and had no length requirements, anything like that. The only the only real change that I had was that the the last part of the story, um, where he where it's revealed that the individual who's do, performing this investigation is actually at the house, that originally came at the very beginning of the story. It started out with him walking up the path, and you know just and then kind of delved into the whole back thing. And I I didn't like that uh, ultimately, just because I I, I thought that. It it worked a little bit more. It was a little bit more creepy. He's just got done describing this, you know, event, and then you realize that he's about to walk into it and, and into the location that all this stuff happened. Versus you already know that he's there and he's talking about it and, and that kind of thing. So uh, that that was really the only major change I, I made to that one. Yeah, I think it was a cool decision. It made a, makes a lot of sense to do it that way, and it it kind of preserves that. You know the surprise at the end, which is is always a great payoff. Mm. And actually, I, I do ta- I do take that back. Um, there 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 was one other there was one other change that I made. There's um, the actual section where I I discuss um, where he 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 turns off the the tape recorder that kind of a thing only because uh, someone one of the people on the one of the sites I posted on actually made some, I, I love constructive criticism. It's, you know, the best, the best kind of feedback because I'm, if I were a professional writer, you know, I'd be doing this for a living instead of whatever else I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love getting feedback from folks and the comment made was like, you know, like you really don't have a reason for why this person is taking like these, why, why are they giving, they're not talking to anyone. Why are, you know, what is the, the purpose of this long drawn out kind of, discussion as you know and then they're there so it, it didn't really make a lot of sense so i said okay well maybe if i add in that he's taking some kind of verbal you know audio recording notes to himself you know as he's moving towards this thing that that would actually sort of make a little bit more sense uh, from a narrative standpoint mm-hmm. so that was another change but so when you um when you started writing the story obviously the, it, it originally started with a writing prompt which I think is interesting. Did that to ask you a little bit about that? Did that help with your process in terms of focusing absolutely. where you were going? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, of the, I think I mentioned. So I've got about nineteen stories in in this you know series that are all sort of interconnected. I think probably about at least thirteen of them have been directly due to writing prompts in various contests and everything else. And so it's it's sort of just a a fun challenge to myself to take some of these very, very not related topics and everything else and try to find a way to not only write a coherent story, but to find a way to make that story stand alone, but then also kind of work into the framework and timeline and events that I've already established and, you know, the other ones that I've already kind of written. So it's, it's, it's getting, the reason, <laughs> the reason I'm trying to finish this thing out is because it's getting, it's getting more and more uh, challenging to do, you know, the further along with this that I go. Um, right. So it's, uh, so we're, we're getting, we're, we're getting to the end, I think, uh, then we'll have to come up with something else. But. Well, it's great that the characters have been talking to you for that long and, and wanting to tell their story. Absolutely. Um, when you, aside from the writing prompt, the writing prompt aside, what came yep. first for you with these stories? Was it, were it, was it the characters? Was it, you know, kind of the, the setting? What, what did you see in your mind or what, what kind of drove you forward with the stories? So in the Wicker House, it was definitely the name of the town, Arthur's Wake. I just wanted to come up with something, again, very Lovecraftian, 
but so I, I wanted something that sounded like it could be the name of a place, but that was maybe something that you hadn't actually heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, something that has like some kind of emotion, just the, the idea of a wake, um, calling it the wake, just bringing to mind, you know, drab and gray and funeral kind of funereal uh, atmosphere, that kind of, that kind of deal. And so that was really, so the setting, I guess, of, of the town that this basically cursed house was going to be a part of. Um, I wanted to create sort of like King's Dairy or, you know, one of, one of these other places I wanted, I wanted to kind of create that sort of central environment for where potentially, you know, eventually what ended up being several of the stories ended up taking place. But I, I kind of wanted that notion that, um, I think a good name just with the words, like you don't, uh, you don't have to go into a lot of detail, but people like can maybe feel like there's more backstory to that. Like, man, why would they name a town Arthur's wake? Like, what does that actually mean? And I've actually never discussed that and I'm not sure if I ever will, but, um, I've, I've thought about that before. What, what would, you know, what is the origin story behind that, that name? But so, yeah, that was, that was definitely the first thing there. Um, Tonda, uh, after after I decided I wanted to go with with um, with the the uh, titular creature, um, I really just kind of started deciding to write about a journey through a rainforest and um, the so the panther attack that that was kind of the first thing that, that kind of came in and uh, yeah just just sort of just sort of went from there. So do you plan your stories out or or do you just kind of write by the seat of your pants? <sighs> Sometimes I plan them out. Um, most of the time I, I have an idea for it and then I just sort of see where the story takes me. Yeah. And, that's a fun way to do it. I think, uh, it, well, and the, the, the tricky thing. And, and so for Tunda, the, the, the thing that if I, if I could change, go back and change one thing, I mean, I, and I hate going back and making huge revisions of my stories after the fact, especially the ones that were, you know, for contests and everything else, just because I feel it's sort of artificial in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, because I didn't have a real strong sense of where the story was going from the jump. Um, I think that I spent a few too many of the allocated words on the setup. And I felt that the second half of the story goes maybe a bit faster than I would have, you know, if if I'd had another thousand words, I think I would have drawn out uh, the hunt for the creature and, and that whole, that whole bit a little bit more to try to build a little bit more of the, of the drama and, and the, growing terror as they're you know getting picked off one by one in the jungle and then get lost on their way back and that, that whole thing I, I would have tried to stretch that out a little bit more but um yeah so but yeah so generally though yep just um have the idea and i start writing and then sometimes i'm even surprised by by where we end up at the end so yeah that's always fun so what surprised you most about these two stories um for for the Wicker House, I was surprised by how much I liked it. Actually, at the end, um, I I I hadn't written a, very much for a couple of years when I actually sat down to write that one, and and I was like, okay, you know, this this could this is actually pretty pretty good. And um, even you know, several years and several stories later, uh, it, it's still probably one that I'm proudest of, just because I, I think it has a very distinctive voice. Um, that yeah, unlike some of the, some of the other ones I have, Tunda I wrote in a similar voice because it's again set back in the early 1900s. So I just tried to capture some of that that feel. 
um, there. But um, what surprised me most about that one? Um, man, I don't know. I think uh, I think uh, honestly, for that, like, surprised me the most. Ultimately, was man. I made a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of the thing references in here that weren't even necessarily intended, but, uh, but, but they, they sure are there. And, and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully the story stands well enough on its own. Yeah. It's funny how those things kind of worm their way into your subconscious. I mean, you know, we expose ourselves to so much in the horror genre. I mean, and it's, I think it's, it's very common in storytelling in general. There are, there are certain tropes, there are certain themes that you find throughout story, uh, because it's what works. And, you're necessarily going to run across common threads, especially when you're genre specific. Um, so, so what is it that attracts you to horror and speculative fiction? What makes you want to dig your teeth into it again and again? I've, I've just always enjoyed it. Um, ever since when I was three years old and I first, uh, was introduced to the real ghostbusters. Um, and that, that was probably my first real kind of dig into, to that. Um, just, I, I, I like being scared. I love reading horror. I love writing it. Um, I could probably write other things. Um, I've had people kind of ask me if I would ever consider writing something else. Even some of the stories that I, I try to, I try to work in other themes, um, to some, I've, I've written some science fiction in, in this series. Some of them are more noir. Um, one of them involves a, a father whose who's young daughter is dying of cancer. So there's a lot of, you know, it's not just straight, straight horror all the time. But I just, I don't know, there's something about that, that fear of the unknown, uh, like, like, like Lovecraft was always talking about. Um, it, it just sort of draw, has, it has its hooks in me. Um, and, and that's just something that I've always... Uh, I have lots of other hobbies and interests and everything else, but uh, this is the only one that I've ever really wanted to kind of pursue from a, from a more writing standpoint. Mm-hmm. So what routines or, or rituals or methods do you use to kind of get you in the writing mindset when you want to sit down and create? Um, I, I generally prefer if I can just be by myself and just have it be quiet, which I've, um, I've got a, I've got a young daughter. I've got several dogs and a cat and, and, and my, my wife and around, I, I work and everything else. So trying to actually find that quiet time is sometimes not easy. Um, so a lot of times when I do, when I do the writing, it, it tends to be later at night, like 11, 12, which in some ways it, it definitely, uh, helps set the mood a little bit. Um, other times though, in the event, like, uh, like actually Fortunda, I, I think I started writing that one at like 10 o'clock in the morning in the, in a, in a cafe. So that was, you know, obviously not that, but really just, um, somewhere that I can kind of sit and focus and, and just try to put my whole attention into what it is that I'm writing. I, I, my wife will tell you that I'm a terrible multitasker. Um, and so I, I really do have to kind of give my full attention to the, to the stories when I'm, when I'm trying to write them. Um, all the more so because I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I'm, I'm not coming up with any kind of, um, inconsistencies, especially trying to figure out ways to work these into the, the, the framework that I've already got going. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, and, and other than that, just, you know, that, that's, that's really about it. There's not, there's nothing else that's really, uh, the, from from story to story that really sticks out to me as far as preparation goes. Okay. 
So we talked a little bit about the thing. We talked about Lovecraft. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. you're, you're, I can tell you're a horror fan. You, you, know, you mentioned Stephen King and Derry. Um, is out of, out of what you've been exposed to, is there a, a story or uh, something you've read, something you've, you've listened to that really changed the way that you write and the way that you approach your craft? Um, not from the standpoint of, so like the, the stories that really just kind of got me, um, there haven't been so many lately only because I just overexposure is a heck of a thing. And so I've watched so many movies, I've read so many books that, that, and even, even in this day and age, like, uh, even if I, even if I read a new book and it's like, wow, that was really good. There's nothing that necessarily, you know, change it. However, I do have lots and lots of, of influences that I think affect me. Um, going into it. Lovecraft is definitely one. Um, Jim Butcher, uh, who it's not really horror, but he wrote the, the Dresden files or it's, it's continuing to write the Dresden files, which is more of an urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but his, his ability to, to weave just, he plays the long game where he, he sort of inserts little details, you know, in one book and then, six years later that detail finally you know you understand oh wow that's what that was and and so that so that kind of thing um stoker's dracula was one of my favorite books growing up um i think i wrote a report about it in high school just i I love the idea of taking all these different perspectives um from you know the letters and the and the recordings and just everything to kind of take those and so in some ways that is possibly how I got some of the inspiration for how I'm trying to, to put this saga together from a bunch of different perspectives from several different you know, journals and people talking and that kind of thing uh, is, is just how it has dragged it. So th- those are probably, so Lovecraft, uh, Stoker, and then, and then Butcher are probably my three largest influences. Although there's countless, you know, King obviously and countless, and actually, yeah, the dark tower series, that was another one that at King's dark tower that, that has that same kind of vein of, um, how he has his universe that literally every, pretty much every book he wrote is somehow tied to that, um, that central theme. So all, all of that, very, very large influences on me. Yeah. You know, I think I, I've noticed that as we mature as writers and as we kind of start to understand our voice and the story that we really want to tell, it, it seems like we're, we're always working towards the same, the same story, the same goal, everything kind of connects. So for King to eventually finally connect everything together to me made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he did it and he yeah. did it very well, uh, which, which consider, and I haven't seen the movie, but I, I'm disappointed by the movie, even though I haven't <laughs> seen it because I heard just from I everything share your perspective on that. It's something that uh, I don't necessarily know that I want to expose myself to. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. it's like it's like you're driving yep. along and you know that there's a wreck up ahead and you're like, should I look? I don't really. I sh- no, I don't want to look at that. Why would I? Yeah, Maybe I yeah. kind of do. Which is unfortunate because I because I I like I love I love Idris Elba and I love yes. Matthew McConaughey and they're so good and and I love and I love the Dark Tower and everything about it and so I, I've heard from enough people that I trust that saw it that that it was not. It wasn't bad, but it just wasn't particularly good. When, when, if done right, this thing could be just such an epic, and ah, uh, so just a, just wasted opportunity. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like I love scotch, I love ice cream, and I love pizza, <laughs> but I would not want a pizza with ice cream and scotch on it. Put right, them all it's together. terrible. Um, 
Each one in its own right is is a good thing, but just jamming it all together in a blender is is probably a bad idea. (laughs) So what does a story have to do to scare you? We talked a lot about kind of your influences. What is the thing that, you know, really draws you deep into that place where you want to be when you're reading or listening to good horror? Um, I'm trying to think, and it's, it's, I have distinctive memories. I have absolutely distinct memories of, of stories that scared me. Um, and for the life of me, I don't know necessarily why. Um, one of them was Misery by by King. I think I read that one in like late, maybe seventh, eighth grade thereabouts. And I definitely remember laying there like thinking that a, a large nurse with a mallet was going to come out of my closet and, you know, hit me, hit me in the ankle. Um, but I mean, frankly, that, that is not even, I mean, there, maybe because that one is pseudo realistic insofar as it could actually, you know, there's, there's a realism there that that could actually happen. Another one that's just totally random. And I, I've actually, it, it was, um, it was a kid's book called return to camp zombie. And I've actually tried to, I read it when I was, you know, maybe in middle school and it gave me a wicked nightmare that I can still distinctly remember, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, maybe more. And yeah, I, I don't know why it, it resonated so strongly. Um, it's just fear is such a personal thing to each per, to each individual. And so that's, I kind of try to work. A lot of my stories deal with um, some kind of real world something. I, I mentioned I, I have the one story, Father's Love, that that deals with a with a father dealing with his. He ends up essentially selling his soul and his his wife to the antagonist to save his daughter. Um, and so part of, part of the reason I wanted to write that is, so I, I, I think I mentioned I have a young daughter, so anything happening to her is absolutely one of my just greatest Mm -hmm. fears in life. And I think it was, I think I actually found it after, after I started writing it, but, um, a close family friend of ours, their, their older daughter actually was diagnosed with cancer after Mm -hmm. I had started writing this thing. And so just those combined things. So there's lots of other, you know, more supernatural things that happen within the story that are horrific in their own right. And there's rituals and just murder and like the whole, the whole deal. But I don't think that anything really other than, you know, like the scariest thing that happens is that you have a child that has an incurable disease that you are absolutely powerless to do anything about. Um, Another, one of my more popular stories that it, it uh, was was lucky enough to be the the story of the month on the Creepypasta Wiki a couple years ago. Is called a figure in the fog, and it opens up with um, a scene, uh, recounting a scene where the the main character is is a, a victim of uh, abuse from his father. Like it just it walks in on his dad beating his mom, and then he ends up getting beaten. And I've had several folks in, um, comments and uh, in particular on some of the narrations that have been done, just, just very affected by that. And meanwhile, later on in the story, you've got, you know, demonic women in white and black eyed children and the whole, the whole gamut. But really 
there's nothing more horrifying in, in that story, I don't think, than, you know, a, a man who will turn around and, and just break his child. Um, and so I, th- I think that, I think that, that, I think that realistic, that something that kind of reaches deep down and touches you on a, on a fundamental level. I think that, I think that's really, and, and, and again, that's very personal. Um, something, something that scares the crap out of me, you know, you might shrug off as, you know, whatever and vice versa. So anything that kind of tips normal society on its edge and pulls the control away from you. I think those two things are, are big components of horror whenever what you think is safe really isn't safe. So I wanted to say, obviously, thank you for your service. And oh, you feel that being deployed and your time in the military has informed or changed the way that you write or informed the way that you tell stories? Um, so somewhat. Uh, obviously, it's given me some a, a base of knowledge that I would not have had if I, if I hadn't had that background. Um, and, and there are, it's actually, it's, it's interesting. There are several other um, folks that I've gotten to know uh, throughout, throughout my, you know, several years of the, within the kind of internet horror community, um, that, that were, are also veterans. And, and so there, there are a decent number of us out there, but so that, that aspect of it, 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 it basically brought in my one soldier, the story, excuse me, my one story of the soldier, which is a definitely the longest one that I've written so far. I think it ended up being like almost 25,000 words. Um, so a, lo- a long story, uh, but yeah. So, but other than that, in particular, um, not not overly. Uh, just, it, I don't know. I've I've always I've always enjoyed reading and writing, uh, but it's not something that I've ever really looked at doing, like, tried to do professionally, or taken any classes on, or anything else. So, um, I, I don't know if if it has. If if just being in the military itself has somehow informed that. I I honestly don't know that I've ever kind of taken as long of a look outside of it to try to determine exactly how that might have happened, might have been. Yeah. But, no, I mean, I think that if, if nothing else, some of the other folks that I know that have been in the military who are writers have said, you know, it's helped them with, with discipline, uh, with confidence to know that you can tackle something. And, you know, some people that have been in active combat have told me, you know, it kind of takes the air out of everything else. Like, you know, the fear of a deadline is nothing compared to, you know, being in the thick of it so that that's that's absolutely true i mean you yeah it it does it does certainly give you a perspective check um and that 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 is 100 percent sure like if true if if you if you've not been in in a, a situation where it's potentially life or death like that then it, it really makes you realize that there are uh, certain certain things in your day-to-day life that people take way too seriously <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So after listening to your story and getting to know you a little bit, where can listeners find more of your work if they want to, you know, go back to that world and, and uh, get creeped out some more? Sure. Um, so the easiest way to find all the stories is on my uh, Creepypasta Wikia user page. Um, if you just go into the Creepypasta Wikia and look for Shadow Swimmer 77, that is the uh, name, the internet handle that I typically, uh, use it, my stuff's all over. It's on, it's on the wiki. It's on creepypasta.com.org. It's on, uh, no, I, I, for like the three people that read it, I, I, anytime I put a new story, I put it up on no sleep and it gets about five upvotes and, you know, then gets just lost into the oblivion there. 
Um, and then also I try to, whenever I come across an author or a, a, a YouTube narrator that uh, has decided to adapt uh, my work, I, I try to include a link to that on my uh, Wikia user page as well, just because I know there's some people that, that prefer, you know, listening to stories rather than, um, rather than reading them. And most of them have, um, you know, at least one adaptation, a couple of them don't yet. Um, but hopefully that'll, that'll change eventually just because, um, I, I just, uh, I think they're decent. Um, and, and hopefully other people do too. And I, I just, you know, I, I just really like to get my, my, uh, the stories I'm telling out there and, um, hopefully, hopefully people enjoy them. Absolutely. That's the point of being a storyteller is that desire to get the stories out there and, you know, let people be transformed by the work and enjoy it. Um, Oh, and, and actually, and actually I do, I do have a Twitter. Um, it's at shadow swim seven, seven. Uh, so not swimmer, but swim seven, seven. Uh, I don't tweet very often. Typically if there's, if I come across a new narration or if I have a new story coming out or whatever else, I'll, I'll do that. But that's, that's really, uh, other, other than trying to mutually support, you know, some of my fellow authors and, and some of the narrators and stuff. That's that's really all I use it for is just strictly to just strictly for the work. But those are those are the two main uh, okay. outlets. So that's a good way for folks to reach out to you if they want to talk to you. Yep, absolutely. Um, and and also on my on on the Wikia page, all my other contact information, email, and, and all that stuff. That's all that's all on the Wikia page as well. If, if people want to shoot me a line to tell tell me that my story is awesome or man, your story sucks. <laughs> Hopefully, it's the former. Just, include well but if if you think it sucks just tell me why so that i can you know try to try to exactly like you said constructive criticism is great as long as there's a point to it just saying this is terrible doesn't really help too much yeah that's that's so anything that you're working on uh now anything that's going to be coming out soon that people can look out for so I just actually, uh, last week there was a contest on the wikia um it was a uh metal song contest uh all the entrants were assigned a uh some type of rock and or metal uh song that they had to you know we had five thousand words to try to write a story inspired by it um i got black sabbath uh by the same band of the same name black sabbath uh so any aussie fans out there it was a weird story it did not do well in the contest at all uh, a couple of the judges were really thrown um, because I wrote it. So one one of the characters in in my series is is actually the the the, the abusive father um, that I mentioned in a figure in the fog. He at the end of that story is transformed into sort of a minion of the the kind of big bad that I have threading throughout it. And so this this was his the story of his transformation, which I really sort of wanted to write as almost like a fever dream. Um, and it's basically him existing outside of out of time and being forced to relive the worst events of his life in the past and also some that were going to occur in the future um and also and ultimately resulting in him choosing to become uh the the minion the the red right hand of uh this woman in white who is my who is my ultimate antagonist and so that that's the latest thing that i'd have out um so that's over there uh, on the wiki and also on on no sleep um and then coming out, like I mentioned, I've, I'm currently my plan right now is I'm I'm a couple thousand words into what I'm intending to be uh, the last 
really kind of big story in this series to try to tie it all together. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to call it song of joy. Um, another, another of my stories was based, uh, it was an, another song contest. Um, it was based off the uh, Nick cave and the bad seeds song, um, called song of joy, but I ended up calling that story her red right hand. Um, but then I just, I just love the name. I just love the title song of joy. And, and I'm, I'm working that into sort of the mythology that I'm building of, of what exactly that is. And so it's, it's just going to be this big kind of apocalyptic event that just brings, uh, all the different characters and timelines and everything I've got going on sort of to this, to this junction that everything's just kind of going to kind of crash together and, and we'll see, we'll see what happens, uh, on the other side. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's late at night, and uh, I know we, we wanted to wait until your daughter went to bed before we talked, so I really appreciate you staying up late and, and uh, taking the time to talk when you could be writing. Um, hopefully, everybody really enjoyed the stories today, and you know, hopefully, we'll get a chance to work together again in the future. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. I really uh, appreciate you um, reaching out, and um, yeah, like, like you said, I hope everybody in, enjoys the work, and uh, please let me know. <laughs> Will do. Will do. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, a higher bitrate version of the show, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. The Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our Season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voice work, or just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch. You can find the channel by going to boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. And don't forget, we have a new show out there, The Private Collector. It's available to our supporters at the $10 a month and above level, and it's a great show. We hope you'll sign up and listen. Until next time... Go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the Tunda to find you.